Thank you, Krista. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And all God's people said, Amen. It's good to be with you this morning. I'm particularly thankful. Thanks, Alex and the praise band. Revelation song. That, uh, that pre-chorus, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. If you look at Revelation chapter 5, you'll find that that is the background noise of heaven forever. And guess what? We'll never get tired of that song. Because the... Uh, uh, the living creatures and the 24 elders will be seeing that all the time. Anyway, as you can see, our little ones are exiting the building through grade four. So if you'd like your little one to be in an age-appropriate service, you can have them follow. I want to welcome you if you're a guest here today. Pray that so far the fellowship has been a blessing to you, and now the time in the Word geared to do just that. So turn in your Bible, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. It's a joy to be back together with you to study the Word of God. And this last week, we just really got our feet wet, as it were, on this new focus of Paul's teaching. Beginning chapter 8, it's going to take us all the way through chapter 11. Last week, we looked at some important background information. If you missed that, I would encourage you to catch up with that online. It's very important as you understand some of the context here as Paul begins to teach uh, the church and answer some questions in chapter 8. But turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 8, if you would. We're going to read together verses 1 through 13. Allow the Holy Spirit then to begin to go to work in the reading of his word, proclaiming it. That's why Jim does what he does in the morning, that we're supposed to publicly proclaim the word of God. That's what Paul told Timothy to have done in all the churches. We're going to do it again right now. It is because God's people are best served by God's word and not by my own illustrations or what I did for my vacation or some catchy video or whatever the case may be. God's people are nourished and brought to maturity by his word. So let's read it. Beginning in verse 1, I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard. You may find that around you there in the seats in front of you. You can just read in your copy. I'll give you some verse cues, as is our habit, so we can stay together. Verse 1, now concerning things uh, sacrificed to idols, Paul says, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Verse 2, if anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. Verse 3, but if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Verse 4, therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. Verse 5, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, verse 6, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Verse 7. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as it were, if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Verse 8, but food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. Verse 9, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Verse 10, for if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? Verse 11, for through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. Verse 12, and so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Verse 13, therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will neither eat meat again, so that I'll never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Stop right there. Last week, we looked at a few things that have made their way into the lists of do's and don'ts relating to gray areas of the Christian life, and we had some fun with that because there are many varied lists over the years, and I showed you that it wasn't a new thing. We went back to the first century and looked at some things that were on lists for people if they wanted to be holy. And we looked at some of the wrangling that goes on about those things, mostly because the Bible doesn't address many of those things as exactly as we'd like to have them stated. Now, these gray areas can be things that are social issues. They can be habits. They can be pleasures. They can be amusements. They can be many, many different things. And we don't need to go into it because you're going to find out what they are when you face them. And you, when you can't find Scripture to go either way and you're trying to make a decision... And there are factors that contribute to that decision, and we went over that last week when we shared some uh, guidelines from the Word of God to help make the decisions as you run into them, and I'll give them to you again at the end as we kind of tie all of these things together. 
So a believer is trying to decide to do something or not to do something, as it were, or whatever the case may be. That doesn't appear to be wrong because he's looked over the Bible and it's definitely not forbidden. And they don't know if it's right to do because they looked over the Bible and it doesn't say it's a righteous act to do. So it's one of those things that falls into that category. It fits a gray area. It's a doubtful thing. And without the guidelines we mentioned last week, starting with the one Paul starts with here then, there are usually two extremes that we fall into. And maybe you've experienced these extremes in your past. Extreme number one, you can find this in your notes, make a list of rules. That's the easiest way to go about it. Just make a list of rules. And there are some people who really love that. They feel much more comfortable in the kind of institutional Christianity uh, where somebody makes a big list of rules and all they have to do is conform to the rules. They perhaps have never internalized their Christian life anyway. They've never known how it is to really walk in the Spirit, to really grow in the Spirit, to really live in a Spirit-controlled manner. So they're living in legalism, and they want somebody to say, you know, do this, and don't do that, and do this, and, and don't do this, and, it, you know, and they can conform to that set of rules, and that, uh, and that really convince themselves that that's the equivalent of spirituality. It's going on perhaps more frequently than you may think. There are lots of churches where it is like this, and I know that some of you came from those types of churches and you have your stories, and the principles of how to live the Christian life are not as prevalent in the church as lists are about what you can and can't do. And there are some people who conform to that mentally because it seems to, to catch this, be much easier upfront overstatement of spirituality to be a not doing this kind of person. You get that? It's much easier to appear spiritual if you're just a I'm not going to do this kind of person than it is to really look at the issues and evaluate what you should and shouldn't do. And so you, and that's really legalism. That really kind of sums up legalism. And so you go from church to church and the don't do this and do this lists are different in each place. And I've had people ask me as I've discipled them over the years if there might be a standardized list, and these are brand new believers, and so I understand where they're coming from, kind of a standardized list that every church, you know, would just publish and agree for the do's and don'ts so that the new Christian, you know, could, would know at a glance what they should and shouldn't do. It's a little overwhelming at first. And, of course, the first problem with all of that would be that churches would never be able to agree on what should be on the list. I remember growing up out west, and as a child and as a young adult, Really, the emphasis was placed on, you know, never dancing and never smoking and never playing cards. And sometimes movies were thrown in there. And I remember going to youth, you know, outings and whatever, and we'd be talking about a bunch of different things. But it always came back to, you know, you should never smoke and all this kind of stuff always made its way into the conversation. And then when I moved to the South, where lots of people smoke, and lots of people used to have their backyards full of tobacco, and that's kind of how they made a little extra living. You know, the pastor would kind of flip a cigarette in the ashtray in his car on his way out and tell people they shouldn't mix bathe, whatever that means. And, uh, you know, at first I didn't really understand what he was talking about. What do you mean mix bathe? What's, what's that mean? But it just meant that males and females shouldn't swim in the pool together or wherever in the lake or wherever it is. And um, they shouldn't mix bathe, definitely no dancing, no movies, but playing cards is fine, you know, as long as it isn't poker. You know, go fish and spades, that's fine, but no poker, okay? So, you know, the lists are all over the place, and so there's these arbitrary standards that, you know, we're set up that really conflict with one another. So the first problem is, you know, no churches, churches aren't going to agree on what should be on the list of do's and don'ts. And secondly, we really set up a very bad standard of spirituality. We kind of fall back into what we just said a minute ago. The spiritual ones would be the ones that did what was on the list. And no matter what other circumstances there were that were involved, then the legalism would become really the spiritual standard, wouldn't it? And I pastored a church that came out of that down in Florida. And the list really takes over the work of the Holy Spirit, you know, ignoring the conscience of the believer, the Holy Spirit's prompting, all the things that are supposed to go on, and really set up a false standard for spirituality and produce hypocrisy. I mean, there's really nothing Satan would like better than to hear us pray like this. Remember the Pharisee in Luke 18. You know, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men who smoke, drink, play cards, go to movies, mimic, bathe, and dance, and whatever. And Lord, it's a shame that other people are not more like me because, you know, I don't do any of those things and, and I fast twice a week and I give all my time and I go to visitation and I give it out of track when I pay my bill at the restaurant. So that's not what the Lord wants us to say. And he certainly doesn't want us to be where the Pharisees were because that kind of mentality is really hypocrisy. That's Phariseeism because that's not the standard, is it? And there are plenty of people who don't do 
those forbidden things that we just mentioned, and they're all in a cemetery, and they didn't do any of that. But there's no life there either, is there? And so, you know, you've got plenty of cults that don't do those things. They're not spiritual. You know, you've got Islam that prohibits all kinds of things, and they're dead in their sin. You've got tons of Catholics who have all these things they need to do and make sure they exclude all these other things, and they're not redeemed either, are they? So you can really align yourself and appear spiritual, but really aligning yourself just with someone who's dead or a religion that's dead, because that's not what it's all about. In Matthew 23, 23 through 28, Jesus illustrates the point pretty well as he's speaking to the Pharisees. He says this, What are you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites? Why are they hypocrites? Well, you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and that's a good thing, right? They were supposed to do that, and so they certainly had that included in the list. And then he says, You've neglected the weightier provisions, more important than the fact that I told you to give, of law, justice, and mercy, and faithfulness. But these things are things you should have done without neglecting the other things. You should have gone ahead and given, but you should have had these other things included in your life too, promptings by the Holy Spirit about mercy and faithfulness and those things. Verse 24, you blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean out the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. Just make an illustration about their actual life as Jesus looks at them. Outside looks good. Inside, not so much. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And even though Jesus' words are so direct here, there are still believers who live that way. They feel their spirituality is based on those areas that they do or do not do. But the fact of the matter is you can't judge spirituality by what they do or don't do in that list. Paul had a, an excellent reminder to the Colossians of this very issue. It was illustrated, uh, illustrates our point really well in Colossians 2.20. He says this, If you've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world... Why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use? In other words, they're all earthly things. You're going to consume them. It's all going to be gone, and it won't be how the next kingdom will be. And we talked about that last week. In accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. So that's all aligned. This don't do this, don't do that is all the teachings of men. And here Paul really comes to the point. He says, these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. And that's asceticism. Let's just make sure that we strip away all the things that uh, look bad to other people and let's just get down to the bare bones. So how far do you cut it down? What parts do you exclude? And then he started in chapter 3, verse 1. And this is very important, I think, and a great parallel here for, for Paul to bring to the Colossians, he says this, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Now, that's one of those positive things, positive commands that we see. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. That's your future. Set your focus on that. Make that your priority. Now, it doesn't list a whole bunch of do's and don'ts, does it, that are gray areas. It just says, set your mind on Christ and the things that are in heaven. Allow the Holy Spirit then to guide you in those things. When Christ, is who is our life, is revealed, then you also be revealed with him in glory. That's your future. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead too. So here's some prohibitive statements, and these we can be sure are not gray areas. Immorality. Impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. So all those things should be excluded. They're not gray areas. If they're in your life, get rid of them, Paul says. Verse 6, for it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. So you don't want to be like the world who's going to be judged, so get rid of those things from your life. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. 
But now you also put them all aside. Here's some more. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. And here's the thing. You know, you can have this list of things that you obey and make sure that you're spiritual on the outside. And some of those people who do that are the worst offenders in malice and slander and abusive speech. Malice is saying something very negative about someone. Slander is saying it about someone and they can't hear it. And so there's this appearance of godliness that he talked about in Colossians chapter 2, verse 20 through 23. But the real godliness is excluding these things, Paul says, that are true sin and are the nature of the unredeemed. And make sure you don't include those other things either. That's not spiritual. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. And that's really just kind of looking to the Holy Spirit who resides in you to be conformed to the image of Christ in that step-by-step process that occurs through the processing of the word and obeying the word. So here's the thing. Refraining from doing things is not spirituality. Walking in the spirit is spirituality. A believer has to internalize the Christian life and walk with the spirit as the spirit of God directs it. Now, as I said last week, I'm not saying that there isn't reason to say no to some things that are gray areas. As you apply those eight questions I gave you to each of those issues, you may find that what may have been a yes for you previously is now a no for you based on your situation. And that's not legalism, see? That's walking in the spirit and looking at the issues and how what you do impacts people around you. If you have extreme number one, just make a list. And that's easy to do, and you just kind of follow the list, and that must be spirituality. Extreme number two, though, is the other side. Here's where the Corinthians were landing. I'm free in Christ. I'll just do it all. Everything that's a gray area, I'm free to do. Here's all this stuff I could or couldn't do. See, it isn't forbidden. You know, I'll just do every bit of it. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm free in Christ. There are no other considerations other than my liberty. I don't really want to work through it all, and I don't have to. I'm not going to let anyone put shackles on me, and I'm not putting shackles on me. So that's the other extreme. First one is make a list. The other one is, hey, I'll just do it all. And on the one hand, we want to have these little boxes for everything where they can just say, you know, it's all settled. I made my list. This is what I'm not going to do. You know, without having to work through it all, I'll just do this and not do that, and that'll be spirituality. And on the other hand, they don't want any boxes for anything. They just want to say, well, that's settled. I'm free in Christ. No chains on my freedom without having to work through all the individual issues as it relates to their life. I'll just do what I want because that's mature spirituality. That's both, that's both extremes of this whole issue about freedom in Christ. But neither of those extremes are a biblical position because there are things in our lifetime in our culture, as there have been in every lifetime, every culture, that are gray areas that have to be thought through using biblical principles. In every society, every culture, every environment that has to be a decision made that, listen, may only be for that time and that place. See. So in any given society, any given culture, any given period of time, under any given set of circumstances, that's a decision every believer has to make for themselves as it relates to their circumstance, okay? And we saw there are, are certainly many things that are expressed clearly in the negative commands. And we saw that in Colossians 3, right? Uh, dead to immorality, dead to impurity, you know, put away anger, all that kind of stuff. And there are certainly many things that are expressed clearly in positive commands. So we don't have to worry about that either. Seek those things which are above, seek Christ, the kingdom to come. Those are all positive commands, things that we are to do. Okay, so not everything is a gray area. Some things are definitely not gray areas. They're prohibited or they're told, you're told to do them. And so it's not optional. God's commands are for us not for him. And so we do what he says. And so the question is then, how do I decide? How do we know what's right and what's wrong in the gray areas? And that's the issue Paul's addressing here. And we're going to look at that and how those questions are framed in just a moment from the believers in Corinth. But just like we saw in Romans 14 and 15, as we dealt verse by verse with dealing with differences in the church, we're going to see uh, some principles that are going to help the church in Corinth and the modern church live together in a much greater harmony. And that's what the Lord wants, because it's all about the testimony of the church. So, let's look at 1 Corinthians 8, 1-3. Let's read that through again, if you would. Now concerning 
Things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Verse 2, if anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he's known by him. Let's stop right there. Now, we saw last time, as Paul says, concerning things offered, uh, sacrificed to idols, that really becomes the theme that's going to bracket chapters 8 through 10. And as you saw last week, it certainly isn't as relevant, or it certainly isn't as irrelevant, I should say, as it sounds on the outside. So when you read, you know, concerning things sacrificed to idols, you may right away say, well, how in the world does that apply to me? And I think that in the statements we've made before and all the stuff we just talked about, you can see that connection. But as we saw last week, it certainly isn't as irrelevant as it may sound at first. The worship of false gods just by themselves and the sacrifice of animals is still going on in many cultures. Missionaries have to deal with it in some cultures, and it still goes on here in the United States. But once again, the principles that deal with this issue have a much greater application than just here. So in our look at the historical background of the situation in Corinth, just remind, just remind you of this, every social situation was dominated by the worship of false gods. Every one. Meat offered to idols would be there to be consumed in every place, every social situation, no matter what was going on. Meat offered to idols passed through the temple of a particular god, part of that sacrifice that went to the priest, as I told you at length last time. Many times, that part of that sacrifice, three, sa- three parts of the sacrifice, one that was offered up in flame, the other part that went to the priest, and the other part that went home with the, with the worshiper. So that part that went to the priest likely would end up, could end up, in a butcher shop somewhere in a, in a marketplace. Now, believers are struggling uh, with eating something dedicated to a false god because their lives were so dominated by worship of false gods before salvation, and they're having a hard time with that. And redeemed Jews would be struggling with it as well, as we saw in that letter to the redeemed Gentiles in Acts 15 last time. So, here's the question. Do you go to the event, or do you stay away? Do you eat what they offer to you, or do you bring a sack lunch and eat that in front of them? Hard issues to reconcile, and certainly an opportunity for conflict inside the church, and a bad testimony in the world. Because what they're trying to figure out is whether they could do the things the world did. Not whether they could do the things the world did that the Bible says are wrong. That's the easy part. No. The issue here is whether they could do the things the Bible doesn't address. That's the issue. And to bring it into the modern or perhaps in the past for you, can, can girls, uh, ladies wear pants? And, or can guys wear shorts to church? And can we swim together? Or can we dance? Or can you know, we cut our hair? Or should we wear a beard? Or should we not wear a beard? And uh, can I smoke or listen to rock music or go to see a movie or, or whatever? See, All the way down the line because that's what our culture does. And if God doesn't say anything negative about it, we have to decide then whether we can participate. Here in Corinth, of course, you have strong believers who know all their freedoms. They fall into that second category. They have knowledge. They are right about the freedom they have. Paul confirms that they're right. And they're doing what they want to do, that second extreme. And you have weak believers sitting in the corner. They don't understand all of this. Why would anyone eat something that was sacrificed to an idol? And they're in that first extreme. So they've got some rules that have to govern their life in order for them to be spiritual. And so you've got that conflict going on. And whether it's the first century or today, Paul's going to give the church a solution. Paul is going to say, as you make the decision concerning your freedom in Christ, the first principle here in 1 Corinthians 8 is, who does my decision affect? That's what Paul says first. We saw that last time. Additionally, Paul would say, As you Corinthians ponder who those believers are that you're going to affect by your freedom, know this, your liberty has a limit as it works its way out in the church. And the the limit to your liberty is love. So we have that principle of effect that we saw last time. Who does my freedom affect? Now last week I gave you a list of seven additional principles taken from the Word of God can help you in that decision-making process. and, And I'll provide those at the end. But as we move on in the text here, Paul tells them, When you're making that decision concerning the gray areas, it only goes as far as love. No doubt the Corinthians, the mature ones, they decided it was okay. Their feeling was, hey, we're just going to go to these events. It's no big deal. We're going to have this great time. We're just going to eat whatever comes. You know, we're going to buy whatever meat we want to buy. And particularly if it's a great deal, who cares if it went through an idol's temple because an idol is nothing. And we're not going to worry about it. We're not going to worry about who sees us. That doesn't matter. And an idol isn't anything anyway, and God isn't really too concerned about what we eat. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 15, verse 11, it isn't what enters the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles the man? We know that, see? We know, and we're not too concerned about what we're doing. We're just going to eat up. 
And some of these weaker Christians, uh, they're just saved out of this. They're having a hard time with all this. It's just killing their conscience. And Paul writes to them and says, listen, your liberty is limited by love. And then he states the principle here in chapter 8. And he illustrates it in chapter 9 through chapter 10, verse 13, just as a sketch of the outline. And then he's going to apply it in chapter 10, verse 14 through 11, and verse 1. So that's where it's going to go. He's going to illustrate it. And then he's going, to, he's going to state this principle here. He's going to illustrate it in the bulk of the passage. And then he's going to apply it. And so that's where we're going to go to. Just use Paul's outline. Now, as we look at this section, we know that it's a Q&A session. We've said that already. All through chapter 7, all Q&A for Paul. He goes through the questions and answers them. He hasn't stopped doing that. He moves into chapter 8. He's still dealing with questions from the church. And it's likely that they gave Paul some reasons why it was okay to eat meat offered to idols in their situation. And these reasons have to do with knowledge. And I think that you picked that up from the text. And let's give you three reasons. Now, these are right in the text, and so we'll just kind of pull them out, and then Paul will address them, okay? All these have to do with knowledge. Reason number one, found in verse one, we know that we have all knowledge. So, in other words, we know that the Bible doesn't forbid what we're doing. We have this knowledge. And Paul says, okay, I recognize that. Reason number two, verse four, we know that there's no such thing as an idol in the world. In other words, we know that there's only one God, so an idol isn't anything, okay? No such thing as any other God. Only one God, Jehovah, just him. And so we're not concerned about all these other worshiping going on because they're not worshiping anything but a demon anyway, okay? Now reason number three, verse eight, but food will not commend us to God. We know this, okay? We know that we're not better if we do it or worse if we don't do it. Either one. And either way, you want to switch that around. It doesn't matter because food doesn't commend us to God. We have that knowledge, so Paul reads their reasons and agrees with their reasons and then shows them the limit of their freedom and why they can't always use just reason to decide what they're going to do. Now look back at chapter, one, verse, or, uh, chapter 8, verse 1. Paul says, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. In other words, Paul includes himself here. He says, we have this knowledge. We all know that. Okay? They're claiming they have matured sufficiently as Christians to have proper knowledge of all this whole, of this whole thing. Note that Paul corrects this assumption when he's, when he's, uh, that we all have knowledge in verse 7. Look forward there just to verse 7. He says this. He says, however, what? Not all men have this knowledge. So he says, I know you think you know that all men have this knowledge, but they really don't. We have it, Paul says. We have knowledge. But what they'd really fail to recognize is that not all men have this knowledge. Everybody hasn't matured to that level yet. But to them, it's, you know, we know everything. We know there's nothing against this. It's not a sin. We know enough to know that. So it's all right. Wrong, Paul says. Not everyone knows that. Okay, so that's the first strike against them. He's like, I agree. We have knowledge. But not everybody has the knowledge, and that's not the only way you make the decision. And here's the thing. It's not that knowledge isn't important or that their knowledge wasn't correct. Paul isn't saying either of those things. I mean, we said before, the church isn't supposed to stay immature. It's not supposed to stay in a place where it's just relying on a list to be spiritual. See, Knowledge is important. It's vital. Paul says, hey, we know we, and he includes himself, we have knowledge. That's fine. Nothing wrong with knowledge. Paul says, for example, just to support the fact that he believed in knowledge, in Romans 15, 14, he says this, and he commends knowledge amongst the, the churches. He says, and concerning you, my brethren, I myself am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. Paul uses that to commend them. You have knowledge. That's a good thing. 1 Corinthians 1, 4, and 5. Just to, just to confirm, as the weak brethren are looking at these people who are saying, look, we have knowledge. This idol is nothing. And, and the meat offered to an idol is nothing. And we can eat it. And we can go and eat it with other people in the community. This is not a big deal. Paul says, that's right. Having this knowledge is a good thing. Being mature is a good thing. Being able to decide this stuff, that's a good thing. 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 5. Remember, Paul was, he was telling them the whole list of things that were uh, uh, true about them and available to a believer. That's how he started the whole admonition to them. He starts with reminding them of who they are and the rich benefit of being a believer. And he says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. In other words, you're a believer. You've been given this grace in Christ Jesus to come to the knowledge of faith. That in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all what? Sure. All speech and all knowledge. That's a good thing. You have that available to you as a believer. 
Not everybody takes advantage of it, but it's certainly there. 2 Corinthians 6, 3, Paul describes his own abilities and virtues, and he says, giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited. That's talking about himself. He's not giving offense, okay? But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance, in affliction, in hardship, in distress, in beatings, imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger. How would you like, you know, you know, Paul to come to your Monday morning pastor's meeting? Hey, so how was your guys' weekend? You know, I stubbed my toe or, you know, whatever. Paul says, hey, you know, I have afflictions and hardships and beatings, imprisonments, tumults, labor, sleeplessness and hunger. In purity and knowledge, there it is. Paul's talking about himself. In purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, and Holy Spirit, and genuine love. Paul's certainly not down on knowledge. Colossians 1.9, Paul prays for the church and he says this. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's where he wants the church to be. Filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's maturity. That's the Holy Spirit at work, giving direction to the believer. Very important. Paul prays for the church this way. Colossians 3.10, Paul says, You've been born again and you've put on the new self who's being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who, was, who created him. So in other words, you've been born again and you're being renewed to a true knowledge. If you're walking in the spirit, you've got let the world dwell in you richly, that's going to be part of your life. See, very important aspect of believe, being a believer is increasing in knowledge. Knowledge is a good thing. Hosea 4, 6, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. And then he goes on and, and he points a finger at, at Israel's leaders and says, you've just led them astray. And he points a finger at the people and you're like ones who argue with the priest. And he just says, listen, my people don't even know what to do and they're destroyed because they don't. So it obviously has to be a priority for the Christian to know this truth, to have the knowledge of his will. Those at Corinth who knew had this knowledge, that was a good thing. By itself is a very good thing. Okay? Paul isn't saying that knowledge is not important. See? Paul's just saying that knowledge isn't the end all of Christianity. And as I was thinking about churches that are around Liberty University, particularly the seminary, I'm just thinking, I think it'd be very easy for us to fall into this category of just having all knowledge, right? We've got a lot of seminary professors and people who teach and whatever, and there's just a lot of knowledge here, okay? And so I think it'd be very easy to fall into that category. But that isn't the end all of Christianity. Paul says in verse 1, concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Just says, listen, knowledge is a good thing, except it isn't the end all of Christianity. They began with knowledge of the scripture, and they were right in their evaluation, but it made them arrogant. And arrogant, Paul uses that Greek word phosio, it's present active indicative here, so that is actually what's going on, and that is the attitude. Paul uses that word six times in his writings, or seven times rather, six times in this letter to the Corinthians right here. And so it's the word puffed up, it's from the word fusa or bellows, and really it's used metaphorically of the Corinthians. And he talked about them, about this a lot. You've really puffed yourself up. They had a problem with being full of themselves, with thinking they knew everything and had arrived. And again, he has to show them this ugly habit of being arrogant, and it comes around something that's a good thing, knowledge. You're arrogant about knowledge. And Paul's going to move on, and he's really going to give the solution to this. And he's going to, as we get there, it'll just be so rich for us. But he says in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, don't tune me out, because you've heard this so many times at a wedding, okay? This is, this is super important. If you have amazing language skills, you can talk, and you know, you know, uh, you know all the tongues of men, You've assimilated all that, and you can even speak angel language. Of course, the only example of angel language we have in scriptures is human language. But if, if theoretically, you could understand all of that stuff, see, and it's not controlled by love, you're just a gong. Now, you've heard a gong before, okay? Now, inside a symphony or whatever, it sounds wonderful. If somebody's just standing up here and beating on it right now, it's, that's not so much, okay? And that's the part Paul's talking about. Verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries, and here it is, all knowledge. In other words, if there isn't anything you don't know a lot about, you are, without a doubt, the smartest person in the room all the time, okay? If, that, if you qualify for that, whatever room you're in, you're the smartest person in the room because you have the most assimilated knowledge. If it's not controlled and limited by love, you're a big, fat zero. That's it. 
And then he says this, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, if you're really spiritual and you believe God in his word, see, and you can act in faith based on God's ability to perform and you align yourself with his word, nothing is impossible for you, see. You could, you know, Matthew 17, 2, you can take a mountain and move it. You can, whatever it is, because you have faith aligned with the word, so you can move mountains around, see. But do not have love, you're nothing, see. It's controlled, it's not controlled by love, the total sum of your worth is zero. That's super important, see, because these are not bad things. Having knowledge, having language, understanding mysteries, all of that stuff, those, those are all good things. The Corinthians had a good thing. They were right about their evaluation of what was going on in an idol's temple. They were right about being able to eat meat idol, offered to idols. They were right about all that stuff, see. Verse 4 says, love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous, love does not brag, and here's the same word, love is not puffed up. There it is, right? You see it? Love's not arrogant. Knowledge, along with every other attribute, has to be limited or controlled by love. Love reaches out and cares about you. Love strengthens you, see? It's not just about the person who has knowledge. Love reaches out. Paul prays for the... Turn to Philippians chapter 1. We have time. I didn't know if we would, but we do. Philippians 1, 9. Will you do that? Hold your finger here. This is, there's some really great, uh, I think, features here, Philippians 1, 9 and through 11, that illustrate for us and can give you some points Kind of see Paul's teaching the same thing across the board to all the churches. Philippians 1, 9 through 11. Turn there just quickly if you would. It's a great illustration. Four books to the right. Paul says that's verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge. You see? And he puts the one that's most important, and that's the limit of everything, and the one that is how everything else is measured, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 13. First, he says, I pray that your love will abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. And that's what was going on. There was some discernment going on in Corinth. They understood the idol. They understood that there was only one God. There's some discernment. The problem was is that the love wasn't abounding more and more. Verse 10, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. So your love is abounding in knowledge so that you can approve the things that are excellent. And that's the Holy Spirit at work, isn't it? In your life. You're evaluating, looking at all the issues and, and your situation and how it will affect someone and all those other things. And you're making those decisions. And Paul's praying this for the church. Verse 11, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. Now, just a few things you can jot down in your notes from this verse. Here it is. He's going to tie knowledge together and love together, and he gives them some basic principles. Number one, it doesn't do you a bit of good to know everything if it isn't controlled by love. And I think we're getting that message, aren't we? It doesn't do you a bit of good to know everything unless it's controlled by love. Here's another one. It isn't profitable for someone if you love them without the knowledge of how to apply it correctly. So on both sides, see, you've got, you've got to have love and you've got to have knowledge. Just having love and trying to apply it without knowledge, that's not going to work, okay, because you're just going to let sin go in somebody else's life. You're not really going to know how to deal with them as you should. Okay, if you just loved your kids with no knowledge, you're going to give them everything they really want, but that's not going to be good for them, isn't it? You're going to let them do what they want, but that's not good for them either. So there has to be some knowledge in there, and you're going in love and knowledge, see? So it's not profitable for someone if you love them without knowledge of how to apply it correctly. And it isn't profitable for anybody, listen, no matter how much you love, no matter how much you know, if you aren't bearing the fruit of righteousness, okay? So you may know a lot, and you may love a lot, and you may be living in sin in your own life, so you're not benefiting anybody with that, okay? So I love how Paul kind of wraps some of these things all together in this package. But when the balance is there then, in love and in knowledge and in righteous living, okay, you may approve the things that are excellent. In other words, do the right thing in the right circumstance in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. And you're going to create an atmosphere where glory and praise go to God, see? So back to Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 8. It doesn't do the church any good for someone to know something is within their freedom in Christ, so a gray area, and just fire away and do it no matter what anybody thinks, see? It's the same idea that he got through to the Philippians. Same idea he's going to, he told the Corinthians later in 1 Corinthians 13. Love moderates all of those things. And that's a very, very important truth because that was what was happening. They were in error, and Paul is... Correcting the error. Now look at verse 2, if you would, back to 1 Corinthians 8. And Paul's going to take their knowledge to task. He says, number, in verse 2, If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. 
So first of all, their knowledge had some room to grow. Okay, so they had knowledge, but it wasn't the knowledge that they needed. Being ignorant is not knowing that you don't know, right? That's being ignorant. You don't know that you don't know. Maybe Paul would say, on the other side, being knowledgeable is knowing that you don't know. Okay? Could that, could that be true? Being knowledgeable is knowing that you don't know. Okay? Being ignorant is not knowing that you don't know. Paul says you, you are knowledgeable, but you need to be knowledgeable that you don't know everything. And as a jab to their arrogance, Paul's just saying, look, there's, there's no point in priding yourself on what's incomplete. You've got arrogance about this knowledge you have, but it's not full knowledge. And Paul's just illustrating what was really missing in their knowledge, and their knowledge is incomplete until it's fulfilled in love. That's the whole point, okay? And I think you can see this. Verse 3, look there if you would. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. The idea here is that those who love God uh, they've been taught by God what love looks like. So they have this knowledge, Paul says. Love is that thing that God expresses to us and love putting a limit on your freedom. He uses this word. He has agnostai hopo atu. Brings you up under the knowledge of God. That's the idea. If anyone loves God, you've been taught by God to love. You understand what that looks like. You have that knowledge of God. You brought yourself up under that knowledge of God. And that's how you're dealing with other people. That's the point. Those that love God are most likely to be taught by God, be made by him to know as they ought to know. You love the Lord, you experienced his love on you, you're able to express that love to other people. It can be understood this way as well, the one who loves God, and by that example loves others. Let's love be the limit to his freedom. God knows him and he's approved. That's the idea. God knows you and you're approved. If one loves God, you understand what that looks like. That love of God that he's given to you, this is love, that not that we love God, but he loved us. He gave his son as the substitution for our sin, the payment, satisfaction for our sin, right? We understand that. We understand what love looks like inside the knowledge that God has of us. And so because we understand that and we love God back in return because he first loved us, we begin to understand what that knowledge limited by love is going to look like. And how much better it is to be approved by God He's known by him than it is to be puffed up about yourself. And so Paul just says, listen, if anyone loves God, he's known by him. And it's come up under that true love and how that's meted out in knowledge. Now, here's simply a principle that the only true way to have the knowledge of God is to love God. And, and that becomes an illustration of his point, see? That in terms of God, you don't just know God. In fact, you don't know him at all until you what? until you love him, and you can't love him until he gives you the grace to do that. And the example of what that looks like is, is exactly what John's expressing to the believer in 1 John 4.10. He says, and this is love, not that we love God, that he loved us, sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's what it looks like, uh, John says. In verse 16, he says, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. That's exactly what Paul's saying, see. If anyone loves God, he is known by him. You're abiding in love. God loves you because he's first loved you and bridged that gap. You respond back in love to God. You understand how that relationship and knowledge looks, and then you are beginning to do that with others. We love 1 John 4.19 because he first loved us. When you love him, that's when you know him, he knows you, right? And that's the point. And you don't really know anything until love is there. And you don't know the revelation of God until you've loved him. You don't understand anything about God until you've loved him. And you can only do that when God bridges that gap for you. And so he's just simply pointing out the fact that knowledge cannot be true knowledge without love, as illustrated by the fact that a man who loves God only really knows God in those terms. See, you can only know God in those terms. Here's the other side. Does anybody who doesn't love God really know him? Does anybody who loves God really know him? Doesn't, doesn't love God really know him? No, of course not. There's no way for them to know him. So Paul reminds them of their relationship to God and says, you know, don't think you've arrived just because of your knowledge. Love and knowledge are inextricable. They go together and they have to be together, Paul says. Your knowledge is incomplete. You haven't come to the point where you understand all of these things. Love and knowledge are cemented together. Love and knowledge have to go together. And that's what Paul was saying. It's just what John was saying. The church and a believer must be theological and relational, both. Okay? It can't just be one or the other. It has to be both of those things wedded together. A knowledge wedded together with a relationship. 
The believer is free and he's bound. He's free in his faith and he's bound in his love. See, it's not just I'm going to do whatever I want. It doesn't matter. I'm free. I understand all this stuff and it's okay to have it in my life. And it, there's no really any constraints on me. It's the only thing I have to think about is just I'm free. I'm not putting chains on myself. I'm not letting anybody else put chains on me. No, that's not that at all. See, although the thing is true that you're talking about, the attitude is wrong. Paul says a believer is free and he's bound, free in his faith, bound in his love. He has to be able to know the truth and then he must have to hold the truth in love. And that's how he begins to relate. And that's why it's a situation by situation issue. See, And you're looking at those who are weak around you and saying, how will this impact? That's this particular issue here. How is this going to impact those people who are around me? It isn't enough to say, well, we know everything, so off we go with our liberty. No, not at all. Paul corrects them. He shows them that freedom will always think about love. Love is key to the behavior. And when you're legitimately, here's the thing, and here's how you can kind of begin to weigh this out in your life, okay? And I put those list, that list of things we talked about last week on there in case you missed those. And I think they're important. They help me. I think they can help you, okay? They're based on biblical principles. And you can check on online and see those verses that I gave you that help you understand these things. But here's the thing. It's not enough to say, hey, we know everything. Off we go with our liberty. We don't care. Freedom will always think about love. Love is the key to behavior. And here's how you know, as you're making those decisions in your life in these gray areas, that you're falling in with knowledge limited by love, okay? When you're legitimately concerned about your gray area decisions in front of a brother or sister in Christ. When that comes into your mind, you're genuinely concerned about a brother or sister in Christ and your decision about your gray area. Okay? That should be coming in and making its way present in your decision-making process. Okay? When you're concerned about how what you're doing is going to affect them, that's how it really comes down. It's a rubber meets the road. Not just about that believer, but how is it going to affect this believer or that believer? When you're concerned about how his conscience will react to what you do, then you're beginning to limit your knowledge by love. When you take care to realize that what you're doing may offend them, may make them stumble, make them weak, as Paul says in Romans 14, then you're really operating on the basis of love. If you're concerned that it could make them stumble, and so you're not going to do it, and that's the limit to your freedom. Do you see? The weight of maintaining unity in the church is always going to fall on the mature, okay? Never in Scripture do we ever see freedom in Christ as a chip on your shoulder, hoping somebody will knock it off, parading it around as if that's the most important thing, see? And just like we saw in Romans 14 and 15, the mature are always going to have to help the weak. And it doesn't mean the church stays weak. And it doesn't mean that the church stays immature. It means that we move towards maturity, but you're never going to do that if you just slam it in their face. Okay? You're never going to do, do that. And the mature, immature, or the, the weak believer, needs to understand that Paul desires for people to increase in knowledge. To understand what it means to walk in the freedom of Christ. Understand what you were delivered from. Understand that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see? And other than the negative prohibitions and the positive encouragements in Scripture, the rest of those things, as you look at them and they fall in the gray area, you allow the Holy Spirit to work that out. Situation by situation. First off, considering how your decision will affect somebody else. And that becomes the limiting factor in your knowledge and in your strength. So when you take care to realize that what you're doing may offend somebody, may make them stumble, may make them weak, as Paul says, then you are operating on the basis of love because knowledge without love makes you a zero, okay? You may be, in your own estimation, a mature believer, but if you're just making your decisions based on what you want to do and not what other people think about what you're doing, then Paul says, listen, you violated the very first principle, the most important one. And that's not the knowledge principle and what you know about the Word of God and what you're free to do. It has to do with a believer who, for whom Christ died who hasn't got to that point where you are and what, they, what will happen to them as a result of your actions, okay? So, out of time, so we're going to close right there. We'll pick up right in verse 4 next week, Lord willing, and continue to work through as Paul presents his case. And he's going to illustrate that case and then apply that case, and it'll be very rich for us. And I think you can see, now that we've kind of sketched that out, we'll move a little bit quicker next week because, more quickly next week, because... You can kind of see where Paul's going, okay? Sketched out correctly. You can see what we're, do, what we're doing. You understand the application. And once again, beloved, I say to you, as I say to you all the time as we've worked our way through 1 Corinthians and through 2 Corinthians, 
that there are more applications than there are time, okay, to go through them on a Sunday morning. There are so many, this is so practical because it has to do with real church living and, and relationships with people, okay? So if you've got questions, please feel free to submit them to me. I'd love to address them, okay? Sometimes they'll just make it w- its way into the message like they did this morning, kind of work through some of those things that people have asked and you'll just kind of get your answer. Other times we'll just do a straight Q&A and just answer the question directly, okay? But remember that you have the same guide that I have and the same tutor. And so you can begin to continue to look and say, well, what about this and what about that? And begin to look at the Word of God and it'll be uh, very rich for you, okay? Let's close in a prayer and then we've got a few announcements and we'll be dismissed. Lord, we thank you today for just a great time in your Word. I'm grateful today for an opportunity to have fellowship together, for an opportunity to give of what we have and of ourselves, uh, for our teachers who serve and for our servants all over the place today who served in the back, who took the offering, who gave out bulletins and shook hands, who uh, worked in children's church and in the nursery. And, and Lord, we're just so grateful for bringing so many to work and do these things that are so necessary for the ministry to continue. I thank you for our missionaries, some who are home with us that we're enjoying being with, some who are still far afield, some whom we'll see on Wednesday. We're so grateful for them as well. The outreach of the ministry here, uh, the gospel that goes out, the, the, uh, the bridging that's occurring because of the gospel. Thank you for their faithfulness and for their commitment and their sacrifice. Father, we thank you today for really some, some wonderful guidelines to help us live. These are so practical for us, and Lord, I pray that you'll help us realize their importance. Perhaps uh, there are those who are living here who haven't even begun to begin to think this way at all, who would evaluate themselves as strong, mature believers, but have not taken into account what they've allowed in their life, how that's viewed by the world around them and their witness, how it's viewed by those who are weak believers around them, and how it may be causing trouble. And Father, I pray that a whole new realization of the responsibility of living in maturity uh, falls on the mature believer to keep unity and to encourage the growth and, and to all the things that you want to do with the mature. Father, I thank you for uh, the blessing of relationships that we have here. Thank you for um, healing things. Thank you for establishing new relationships. Thank you for the meeting of needs that goes on behind the scenes all the time here. So grateful for that. And Father, for uh, our opportunity tonight to do ministry and, and some of the things we'll be doing, Lord, I pray that your blessing on that, that you guide us. Uh, ordain those opportunities that you have planned for this week, for next Saturday. Uh, Lord, that you will bring about glory to yourself, that a bridge for the gospel, a gospel given out and fruit from the gospel and salvation. Help us to be faithful to be found to do these things as we wait on your son's return. It could be very, very soon. And so we look forward to that, Father, and in the meantime, help us to be found as faithful servants. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.